Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. The Wildflowers Tour will have to be in smaller places because it's just a lot of it is quiet. A lot of it is acoustic. So I don't want to do that in arenas. I'm just worried about the sound and the intimacy, you know, and the value of the experience. I think you, you'll walk out feeling much more fulfilled if it's a little more intimate. During the last years of his life, Tom Petty spent a lot of time thinking about one of his greatest albums, 1994's Wildflowers. You belong among the wildflowers. You belong in a boat out at sea. Wildflowers was one of Petty's most personal albums, Full of raw honesty. Sessions for the album had produced way more material than Petty could fit onto one record at the time. And over the years, he often told Rolling Stone that he desperately wanted to release everything, so fans could finally hear the complete, uncut wildflowers. He just had to get through his 40th anniversary tour. You hinted in the letter to the fans that maybe, maybe, maybe this might be the last big one, sort of. Are you thinking that at all? Yeah. I would be dishonest to say I wasn't thinking that a little bit. I'm not thinking it's the last time we're going to play. I'm thinking it may be the last trip around the country. Huh. Why? Everyone's tired. <laughs> His wife, Dana, remembers when he got home from that tour. He had such a great year. And he was like, I can put all that behind me and do wildflowers. And he really wanted to make it something special. And he talked about it nonstop. But Petty wouldn't live to see it happen. On October 2nd, 2017, just one week later, Tom Petty died of an accidental drug overdose. Tom Petty loved this album, and so did our voters. Of his three albums that made Rolling Stone's new list of the 500 greatest albums of all time, Wildflowers ranked the highest. I'm Brittany Spanos, senior writer for Rolling Stone and your host for Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums, the podcast where we dig into 10 albums off our brand new list. In this episode, Tom Petty's Wildflowers. In the mid-90s, MTV and Top 40 Radio were dominated by younger artists like Green Day, Weezer, Snoop Dogg, and Mariah Carey. Rock stars who had become famous in the 70s or 80s were mostly confined to oldie stations and greatest hits tours. There was a major exception to this rule, though. Tom Petty. 
Teenage fans loved MTV staples like Mary Jane's Last Dance and Free Fallin'. And at concerts, they stood alongside fans who had loved Petty since American Girl back in 1976. Rolling Stone's senior writer, Andy Green, interviewed Petty multiple times over the years. He picks up the story. Tom Petty was on a hot streak when he began writing songs for Wildflowers. In the previous few years, he had released several of his most successful albums. And even though he was in his 40s, he was making music that somehow fit in the times. It was the peak of the grunge era and the alternative music revolution, but he was suddenly cool again. Here's his daughter, Adria. I mean, the world had changed. But I was saying to somebody else the other day, like, he always looked like he was doing grunge. You know, he was always wearing his street clothes. That movement came around, and I think it was just more honesty in rock music at that time. One of Petty's close friends and a member of his band, The Heartbreakers, since the very beginning was Mike Campbell. He was at Petty's side as he wrote song after song for Wildflowers. He would come in with a handful of songs every other week. So looking back on it, it was a real prolific time. But for Tom Petty, it was also a difficult time. He was on the verge of firing Heartbreakers drummer Stan Lynch after years of personality conflicts and creative clashes. And even worse, his marriage to his wife Jane was falling apart after 20 years together. They wouldn't formally separate for a couple of years, but Petty knew it was over by this point, and he was writing about all of it. There is this feeling and this ache to it of like, hey, I always visualize this with you. You're my partner. Right, right, right. Again, Petty's daughter, Adria. It's an incredible tribute to my mother, because she was his partner in crime. She did give him the strength to fight the odds to build a great career at that point. In later years, even Tom would call Wildflowers his divorce record. Mike Campbell hears it that way, too. Yeah, I knew what he was going through, and uh, he was struggling at times. The old adage, you know, sometimes good songs come out of pain. But uh, I think the music and being working with the studio was probably a nice oasis from all of that for him. These were different kinds of songs than Petty had written before. They were more raw and more confessional. So he knew he needed a different kind of producer. There's something about the artist's work that has a little bit of a diary-like aspect. The work reflects a time in someone's life. That's Rick Rubin speaking with Malcolm Gladwell on his podcast, Broken Record. He told me Wildflowers scares him because he's not really sure why it's as good as it is. So it, it has this like haunted feeling for him. Producer Rick Rubin made his name as a co-founder of Def Jam Records, where he helped shape the careers of hip-hop pioneers like LL Cool J and the Beastie Boys. But he also loved rock and roll. By the 90s, he was producing acts like Slayer and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And he believed in freedom and spontaneity of the moment. It was a marked contrast with the approach of Tom Petty's previous producer, Jeff Lynne, the famously detail-oriented leader of Electric Light Orchestra, who had produced Petty's previous two albums. And Jeff Lynne really was a hard ass about the songs. The songs had to be good and sort of pop song power. Everything has to be in time and in tune and meticulous and perfect. I try to make more, at least in this case, it was more about the organic moment where it felt, it felt more alive and more human, warts and all. Petty explained why he was so drawn to Rick Rubin in a 1994 radio interview for Westwood One. Oh, I love characters. Rick is certainly a character. Um, he's very good, you know. It's, it's, um, it took us a little while to completely understand each other. 
But from day one, I always wanted to stick it out and because I knew he was so different than me and some it's very like me in a lot of areas too. But he's a, has very good instincts and uh, has a very good musical head for someone who doesn't really play anything. Tom Petty worked on Wildflowers over a two-year period at Sound City Studios in Los Angeles, the same studio where he recorded his 1979 album, Dan the Torpedoes. Petty had just left MCA Records and was taking his time. Again, Mike Campbell. Well, sometimes having a deadline is a good thing. It forces you to get in there and, and not fool around too much. Uh, but on Wildflowers, we did not have a deadline. And I think it worked good for that record because it gave Tom time to write a handful of songs. Maybe out of five, three were good. We'd throw the other two away or whatever. And he'd take a break and wait for the muse. You know, sometimes the next day he'd say, oh, I've written another song, or it might, a couple of weeks might go by. And he'd say, I've got a couple of songs to try. And so it allowed him the freedom to wait for the songs to come rather than force it. At the time, Petty was living in Malibu, writing song after song in a little room. And he played every instrument by himself. His daughter, Adria, says that she can hear the change in her father on the album. You're listening to just this complete diary of transition. There's stuff that's very like open and sort of like one-dimensional on the surface, but then when you dig a little deeper, it's dark humor and it's sardonic, you know? It's like, life can be really complicated, you know? You belong among the wildflowers You belong so poignant so it's the only song i think he ever wrote about himself the you in the title track is petty himself though he didn't even realize it again dana petty talking to rolling stones david brown you know and i always told him that he didn't believe me until his doctor finally said that but his doctor his, <laughs> okay his psychiatrist said, okay you know, that song's about you and he finally was like Okay, it is about me. I'll, I'll give it up. Right away, let your heart be your guide. You know, and he wrote it all in one sitting. He didn't, you know, it just right. came out. So, right. magic. Yeah. People come, people go. Some grow young, some grow cold. You don't know how it feels would end up becoming the album's biggest hit. It was about pain and its connection, but it was also incredibly catchy. Mike Campbell told me that it actually started as a fun experiment in the studio. We never really think about trying to make a hit. I don't know if we could if we tried. It's usually an accident. But one day we were talking about, we should cut something that sounds like a hit. Me and Rick and Tom were discussing it, and he said, well, like what? He said, well, put on the radio. And that Steve Miller song, uh, I'm a Joker, I'm a Smoker, had that beat. And we thought, well, that's a great beat. Let's use that beat and uh, came up with You Don't Know How It Feels, built around that drum feel. It sprung from that. Petty was constantly writing and rewriting because he could. He had the time. According to Mike, the first demo of You Don't Know How It Feels had a line that Tom eventually took out and used on Crawling Back to You. I'm so tired of being tired Sure as night will follow day most things I worry about. Most things I worry about never happen anyway. You know, I use that phrase in my own head from time to time. 
to get through tough periods. But that song was not structured per se. It did not have an arrangement. We wanted it to be loose, like kind of like a jam. It has some of the element of that we're just playing. We're not playing parts. We're just reacting to the voice and kind of a, a loose uh, feel to it, which I think it came out feeling very comfortable that way. Petty wound up recording close to 30 songs, but there's only one problem. They couldn't fit that many songs on a single CD. Here's Petty talking to Rolling Stone's David Brown in 2013. When we made Wildflowers, our intent was to make that a double album. When we played it to the record company, Lenny Warnaker listened to it with Rick Rubin and I, and he said, yeah, it is great, but I think you're going to, it's too long. You need to cut it down and we were like oh man you know we wanted it to be a double album and he said well it is a double album <laughs> he said one the first cd is longer than two vinyl records cutting the album down to 70 minutes wasn't easy <laughs> there were a lot of whiteboards and a lot of cheat sheets what are you spreadsheets of album sequences that's rick rubin's longtime deputy and co-producer on many albums george dracolius and a lot of burning cds and long drives to listen to everything. Some of the cut songs wound up in the soundtrack to the 1996 Ed Burns movie She's the One, but most of them got tucked away into Petty's vault and were never heard for decades. The original version of Wildflowers became a huge hit album for Tom Petty, but he never stopped thinking about all the unreleased songs that were left in the vault and the possibility of playing them live one day. The idea was on his mind the last time I spoke to him back in 2016. At one point, the label really wanted to just put it out as a standalone album, the, the second part. And then there's a point of view where they want to put both records together. And then there's a point of view that wants a box set with the demos and all that. Right. I don't see that as much fun to me, but uh, other people do. But what I would like to do, really, is perform all of those songs. Before he could do those things, though, Petty had one more big tour to get through, a 40th anniversary run with the Heartbreakers in the spring and summer of 2017. It was both a coronation of an epic career and a slog. Petty needed surgery for a fractured hip and was taking powerful painkillers. Drummer Steve Ferroni remembers the toll it took on Petty. From the dressing room to the backstage, he uh, always had a, a little uh, golf cart. Mm-hmm. That were taken. And at one point, my knee was hurt, so he put me in a wheelchair. We'd walk out the coast and we'd go up on stage. He put his arm around my shoulder and said, Yeah, let's get up there. And we'd walk up the stairs, both of us sort of limping up the stairs. But none of this was visible to the audience, and the shows were some of Petty's best ever. He started every show by playing Rocking Around with You, which is the very first song on his first album, and then they journeyed through his whole career. The tour wrapped up at the Hollywood Bowl on September 25th, 2017, and the last song that they played was his first hit, American Girl. Here's his wife, Dana. Usually he got home from tour and was spoiled, rotten, and grumpy. With Lester he did, he was a completely different person. He was super happy, hmm. and he enjoyed his time on the road. But he also got weirdly nostalgic. At one point he asked Dana to find his fun in the desert video, a very obscure clip from the late 90s where he rode around a barren landscape on a mini motorcycle. And even though Petty hated Facebook, he also asked Dana to track down a high school girlfriend on the site. 
one girl he liked in my junior high and high school and was out of his league. But it's the girl that he told, you know, she she went to him and said, I need a band for the, the dance this weekend or next week or something. And he said, I have a band. And he went and put together a band. That was his first gig. He was trying to show off for this girl. Wow. Did you came. find her? We okay. found her. Yeah. He wouldn't let me message her or anything, okay. but we found her. And just one week later, Petty's hip fracture turned into a full-on broken hip. He was in agony, so he took a few different prescription medications. And on October 2nd of 2017, Tom Petty died from an accidental drug overdose. He was 67. And one by one, the members of the Heartbreakers got the news. Their leader and close friend, the man they'd known for decades, he was now in a coma and was not expected to survive the day. They all made their way to the hospital to say goodbye. He had his hair straight. He was was quiet, but he looked like an angel. Steve Roney told me that the moment is forever burned into his memory. He remembers a very dark room and a doctor walking in and telling the band that Tom was gone. And at the end, there was just wailing. Three years later, Dana Petty says that it still hasn't gotten easier. But she does tell herself this. That's the way to, to go out when you're on top of the world and not in any pain. He wasn't, he didn't die in pain, he died in his sleep. So, you know, I think it's the way he would have, if he had to choose a way to go, that would have been the way to go. And the time, as hard as it is on, for all of us left here. After getting over the initial waves of shock and grief, The Heartbreakers and Petty's family knew what they had to do. They teamed up to finish the project Petty always dreamed of. They got to work on a new box set, which is called Wildflowers and All the Rest. It's full of previously unheard demos and finished songs. I searched the home studio and all of our closets and cupboards and everything for dads, and we found all these dads that he'd been looking for for years. And Mike Campbell says he channeled Petty during the process. All the way along. I always just imagine he was sitting there and he'd be like, well, you know, should we do this? And I, he would say, you know, whispering in my ear from the unknown, like, yeah, this is good. Or no, don't ever let that see the light of day. So I used him as my barometer. Yeah. And um, we tried to stay true to what I think he would have wanted. I find wildflowers to be such a balm for everything. Petty's daughter, Adria. Being allowed to go back and look at like, you know, I don't know, Citizen Kane and restore its print. He gave us such a huge gift. Like, this stuff is still uplifting and moving and soothing people now. And I'm just proud to be able to put his final project out. I have felt very close to my father throughout the process. It was a process that Dana Petty says she also found hard and beautiful. I was over there every day listening, and it was very healing and exciting, and we'd dance around, and it's just... You know, the music is healing. It's been a really hard three years, but that's what's gotten us through. I just wish she could have lived to play it out, you know. Run away, find you lover. Go away, somewhere all bright and new. Tom Petty's Wildflowers ranks 214 on our 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list. The new box set is called Wildflowers and All the Rest. After this short break, more about Petty's legacy. 
from the Rolling Stone writers who have intimately covered him over the last decade. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. I'm now joined by my colleagues, Angie Martosio, Andy Green, and David Brown. Do you each want to introduce yourselves? Maybe Angie first? Yeah, uh, I'm a staff writer for Rolling Stone. I usually cover a lot of classic rock, so Tom Petty obviously falls into that, and I'm a lifelong fan. I'm Andy Green. I'm a senior writer at Rolling Stone. I'm a huge Tom Petty fan. I saw him in concert a bunch of times. I did lots of interviews with him. And in the final years of his life, he spoke to me a lot about wildflowers and his dreams of the box set. David Brown, I'm a senior writer at Rolling Stone, covering a wide range of music topics. I had the honor, I guess, to do a story about the making of this whole Wildflowers expanded edition, uh, in addition to having interviewed Tom a few times in the past myself. Did he ever bring up Wildflowers in your conversations? He brought it up with me the last time I talked to him, which was uh, 2013. And it was interesting because we were actually on the phone talking about one of his heroes, J.J. Kale, who had just died. And Tom was sharing some thoughts on Kale's music and his influence on Tom. And, you know, I just, at the end of the conversation, just asked him what he was working on these days. I think I'd heard he was working on a record. And he said, yeah, we're about to finish up this new record. and almost done. It was the record that was Hypnotic Eye, although he didn't say the title of it at that point. But then, like, without any prompting from me, he just said, oh, and also, we just dug up all this wildflower stuff. You know, he just started telling me that that process had just started recently. He told me the whole story of submitting the original double CD to the record company and how they had him take half of it out. And the 20th anniversary was coming up and he was planning to finally put it all out, the complete wildflowers again. He seemed very excited about it. He seemed, in a way, as excited, if not more excited about it than the new music he was making. It was clearly a sign that he was maybe not just had such fond thoughts of that record, but... Maybe he was thinking about his legacy a little bit at that point in his life. You know, I think it was news to some of us that he was even doing this. That was seven years ago. And several years before he died, he was clearly excited about the whole project. I talked to him in 2015 and 2016. And both times he was talking a lot about Wildflowers. He was talking both about the box set that, that he was working on, all the great outtakes he was finding, and he was talking about a tour. He was really excited about the thought of a Wildflowers tour. He wanted to go out and play theaters and have special guests and do both albums of Wildflowers. That was his plan for after his last tour, and he was super psyched about it. Yeah, about a week before he died, he was talking about it with Steve Ferroni, his drummer, and Steve told me that exactly as Andy said, he wanted to go out and do those songs live. And according to Steve, it even had a more detailed plan where 
he would play the original Wildflowers, the record we all know, the original release straight through with the Heartbreakers. And then he'd play all the unreleased songs afterwards with all these guests. And he was mentioning Stevie Nicks, which is an obvious one that comes to mind, and Eddie Vedder and maybe Steve Winwood. And I don't know if they ever approached any of these people, but that was kind of Tom's dream lineup and dream plan for how to do this. He never did a, a similar kind of classic album start to finish project like that. It seemed like he kind of avoided that. So the fact that he was doing that for this record was a pretty meaningful gesture on his part. I spoke to him about those classic album shows, and he said he hated the idea that in his mind, an album sequence is very different than a set list. But he saw the Stones at the Fonda Theater in L.A., and they played Sticky Fingers in a different order. And he loved that show. And that got him thinking of Abe at a Wildflower show. What was it about this extremely personal album that made the very private Tom feel so proud? I think after Wildflowers, he struggled for a few years. I think his marriage fell apart. He lost his bass player, Howie Epstein. He had a drug problem himself. After Wildflowers, his life got very difficult for a very long time. Wildflowers is sort of, I think to him, it embodied a better time. You know, he was in the starting phase of a divorce, but his life was still in a much better place than it went to in later periods. And he sort of saw it as this unfinished masterpiece as far as the public heard. And it was sort of the end of a very good time in his life from the late 80s through the mid 90s. Yeah, it's often thought that Echo, the album after this, is his divorce album. And I don't even think he realized at the time that Wildflowers is his marriage crumbling. He was with her for over 20 years. And there's songs like Only a Broken Heart and Crawling Back to You that I think years later he realized that that was his definitive divorce record. And he got married to Jane Benio right before he was a musician. Like right before he made it big. And I think he expressed like becoming a celebrity, having a career and still being married and having a family and the struggles that he went through, which is not something he ever really talked about. Andy, what was happening in Tom's career when he started recording Wildflowers in 1992? So 1992, Tom's career was in a very interesting place because three years earlier, he put out his first solo record, which was Full Moon Fever. And that was a huge, huge hit that had Free Falling on it, that had I Won't Back Down, that had Running Down a Dream, and that sold by the millions. And he was reborn as sort of a pop star in a solo act at a time that his career was sort of fading a bit by the late 80s. In 91, he got back with Jeff Lynne in the studio. They made into the Great White Open. That was a huge record. And so he was really confident. He was really on the up and up. And he had signed to a new label. So he was really in a great place in his career where he was very popular and was very established as a superstar again. Rick Rubin was a really surprising choice for producer on this album. David, how did Rick come to be involved in this project? According to Tom's daughter, Adria, Rick came to be involved in it in a very unusual way, which is that Tom and Rick and many others were at the big Bob Dylan tribute concert at Madison Square Garden in 1992, and they all flew back together on some kind of Warner Brothers corporate jet. And I don't think Rick and Tom necessarily huddled at that point, but I think Tom saw Rick on the plane and he saw Rick was immersed in like some Neil Young records on his headphones. And there he was at the Dylan concert. And I think you know, Adria said she was a big Rick Rubin fan because she loved the Beastie Boys and other things that he worked on. And she said her dad just thought Rick is like this rap guy. But then on that plane flight, Tom suddenly realized, oh, this guy actually has a sense of history. 
And I think that planted the seeds. And it turned out that also Rick had a good relationship with Warner Brothers, which was Tom's new label. And they were looking for something of a fresh start for him musically. So everything kind of just clicked. And of course, this was you know around the time Rick was starting to work with Johnny Cash as well. So he was expanding his sonic palette as well. Angie, how does this compare musically to Tom's earlier work, especially with Jeff Lynne and, and with Jimmy Iovine? I think coming off his work in the 80s, it wasn't as poppy for Wildflowers. It was definitely like stripped back. It went back to his roots, um, very like soft. And in terms of the lyrics, this is the most personal he'd ever been. Songs like You Don't Know How It Feels and Crawling Back to You. It was definitely a turning point for his lyrical work. I do think some of the songs are deceptively dark. When you first hear You Don't Know How It Feels to Me, it's so light and bouncy and fun. Uh, you never take a step back and realize that he's kind of being honest, that you don't know how it feels to be him. And being Tom Petty, it sounds great, but you don't know what it's like. And there, there are moments where it was very difficult. And I think that song is conveying that in a clever way. It's also that MTV censored that let's roll another joint line in that song, which I always <laughs> love. <laughs> yeah, and even there's darkness in It's Good to Be King, because he was king in that moment. He was the king of rock in so many ways, but... The way he's singing it, it does not sound so good to be king. And this is technically a a Tom Petty solo album as opposed to a Heartbreakers album. How can we hear the difference? I think the the, the range of styles on the record kind of speaks to the fact that it's a solo record. Only some of the Heartbreakers play on it. They had a new drummer they were breaking in. But in a way, it's almost like Tom's singer-songwriter record, Uh, even though it's not every song is necessarily fit into that. And I think that's, to me, the way in which it sounds much more direct and personal in the things he's singing about and in terms of the arrangements being a little more geared towards, say, his voice and the lyrics as opposed to kind of more of the band sound. And that's always one of the things that's so fascinating to me about it, too, is that he was, I think, a pretty private guy. And yet, you know, it was interesting that his favorite record would be the one where you know, he's writing about his marriage kind of falling apart. Even if it's not super directly, he's not naming names and dates and things like that. But it's, so he's clearly putting it out there that he's going through a kind of turbulent period also with his band. And I think that also adds to the idea that it's more of a solo record in terms of him speaking directly to things that he might not have addressed in a band situation. It took two years to finish this album. Andy, why did it take Tom so long? I think by 1992 that Tom, he was really reestablished as a superstar again. He had so many hits in the past few years. He was on a new label and he felt no pressure. He didn't need to sort of have a hit. He didn't need to be back out in the public eye. He was he was very established now. And in the middle of it, in 1993, he released Greatest Hits Volume 1. He was forced to do it by his label. And they forced him to have a bonus song on there, which was Last Dance with Mary Jane, which became a huge, huge hit. He was sort of shocked by that. It was sort of this leftover song that they made pretty quickly. And then all of a sudden, it's all over Top 40 Radio. It's all over MTV. He has one of the biggest hits of his career in the middle of making this record. So that gave him a sort of cushion. He felt no pressure. He had a hit. He didn't need to rush anything. He was able to just make the exact record he wanted to make on his own timeline. Also, I think one of the interesting things about this record is historically is that, yeah, it did take that long. And it's a reminder of a period of time when artists could do that. You know, back in the 90s, the record business was flush with cash. 
from CDs. You know, there really wasn't an internet yet, so people weren't rushing to uh, put new songs up. It was almost normal to take a year and a half, two years, sometimes three, to put out a new record, and nobody was feeling the pressure. We're seeing artists put out new albums every year now or so, and that's a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, it was the case in like the 60s and 70s, but after a while there, people would eh, take their time. And it feels like Wildflowers is one of the, not the last one of those kind of records, but it was one of the last ones of those before kind of the modern period kind of kicked in. Yeah, and they didn't work for two solid years. They'd work for a few weeks or a few months and then take long breaks. And those breaks, Tom went home and he wrote new songs. He wrote new demos. So he kept improving on himself. He wrote far more songs than he could put on the record. So those two years, it just gave him time to live life and to get inspired and, and to write more and more great songs. But they would also take their break every Thursday night to watch Seinfeld, as the recording engineer told me. <laughs> Very important part of the record making process in the 90s. Absolutely integral to the creative process. I know there's also some some shuffling around with the lineup with Stan Lynch leaving the drummer. Angie, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about some of the collaborators that Tom brought in for this album in particular. Yeah, I mean, Tom had grown up a huge Beatles fan and a huge Beach Boys fan. And you see Carl Wilson on backing vocals for Honeybee. He had Ringo play on To Find a Friend. And as you said, in between drummers, before Steve Ferroni officially joined, the band went on Saturday Night Live and asked Dave Grohl to sit in on drums. And this was the fall of 94. Kurt Cobain had died in the spring and Nirvana was over. And Dave Grohl was saying, I had never looked forward to drumming as I did on this show. I can hear so much of what alt country has sounded like over the last two decades and so many artists who you can see that direct through line from Wildflowers to so much music from today. And can you talk a little bit about the legacy of Wildflowers and how it's defined since then? Yeah, I think especially if you're someone younger, a lot of millennials get into this record more than this other stuff. And especially if you're not someone who loves like that sound of classic rock, like you know, Don't Do Me Like That and I Won't Back Down. Those are great songs. But if you want to get more into his personal singer-songwriter aspect of it, I think this is a great record to start. And it's often the gateway, and I think that's why it's endured for so long. Would you say that this is Tom's most influential album? I think it is. The sound of it, I think going back to his roots is more important, and I think it's softer. And I think it's what people really connect with, to be honest. I want to hear Angie talk more about the millennial interest in this record. How would this record speak to, you know, someone in their late 20s, or early 30s? It's fascinating. I think Britney can relate to this, that more and more with people my age, they're falling a little bit away from classic rock. And people really connect with songs like, I mean, when I first heard It's Good to Be King, for example, and for so many years, I had known him as like the guy who sang American Girl. I truly was stunned. And I think that there's so many songs on this album that are really relatable coming from his personal self. I don't know. I feel like a lot of younger people can stick to that more. Yeah, that softness is definitely, it feels so much different than the Tom from classic rock radio, the kind of like bigger sort of anthem rock songs of his earlier days. Totally. I wonder if it's like, there are certain records that do transcend their time. Nick Drake comes to mind, mm -hmm. like that just speaks to people across generations. I was just going to say it's very Nick Drake. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if this is like a new Nick Drake kind of record that will like it transcend the classic rock tag or the period that it came out and speak across generations, which doesn't always happen. Yeah, it's a 1994 record that doesn't sound like 1994. Whereas he had some 80s singles, if you think about It'll Come Around Here No More, that is rooted so firmly in its time and place with the drum machines and the synths. 
that it, it can't really transcend its time. It's a good song, but it's stuck in that time. Whereas this is timeless in a way. It's 1994, but it could have been 74. And that's an amazing thing. And Tom's dream of releasing all the material that didn't make the original cut of the album finally came true with Wildflowers and all the rest box set. David, you wrote a great piece on how the project came to fruition. Can you tell us how it came together? It came together not very easily, for sure. The family and the band and so forth first focused on some kind of compilation kind of projects. And then early last year, out of the blue, at least for those of us outside the inner circle, there was suddenly a slew of legal papers that went flying around between Tom's two daughters from his first marriage and his second wife, Dana, accusing each other of various things about the business of the estate and so forth. And Wildflowers was mentioned as, you know, a project that was in the works and that Tom always wanted to do it, but it suddenly seemed completely stalled. And I, I think in some ways this is a natural reaction of the grieving process. As some of the people have discussed with me, suddenly Tom is gone, the center of this universe is gone, and people are kind of grappling with, well, how did this happen? Maybe who was responsible or whatever ways. I mean, he overdosed for prescription medications. So there was a, a lot of shock and probably anger and dismay that kind of spilled over into everybody trying to figure out what would he want for this project? How should we do it? Who should be involved? And so, for it seemed like a good chunk of last year, this whole project was in limbo, even though it seemed to be moving along and they had the demos and things ready to go and, and everything was almost in place. And then it was just all kind of shut down. And finally, at the end of last year, Tom's kids and Dana's second wife kind of got together, supposedly according to them, without lawyers and just worked it out between them. And then it resumed. They were able to find even more recordings and kind of do this total blowout collection they've done. But it was uh, it was a complicated process that dragged on, you know, probably longer than even Tom would have wanted. What are the best Lost Treasure songs that were unearthed for the new reissue? I love Leave Virginia Alone. It's sort of a weird thing because he gave the song to Rod Stewart in the mid-90s, which is where I first heard it. And Rod's version is not that great. It's very Rod Stewartized. It's very like kind of sleek. Tom's version of it is much, much better. It's more stripped down. It's just a brilliant song. Well, yeah, there's an entire disc of all of his demos, which include a, a lot of the songs that were on Wildflowers, as well as a couple of others, like a song called Harry Green, which is an almost uh, Dylan-esque acoustic guitar and harmonica kind of thing. And I think that whole disc holds together really well. It's almost like a separate album unto itself, almost like his Bruce Springsteen Nebraska type record as well. These demos aren't just him in a guitar and a voice. He would often sometimes overdub other instruments on it, kind of the way Bruce did a little bit here and there. And so even though it doesn't feel like a polished record, that whole unplugged demo disc, I think is a real highlight of this whole collection because it, it really hangs together as almost its own separate album. Yeah, and I think it really shows just the insane depths of his talent. There's songs like There Goes Angela to Dream Away that for most artists would be the centerpiece of their album. It's this beautiful, brilliant song. And for Tom, it was just something that he cut and he just threw in the vault for the next 20 years. I mean, it's really incredible. You can also see the process of him making these songs in the demos that David was referring to. You Don't Know How It Feels has a verse from Crawling Back to You on it and you feel him piecing these songs together. It's a pretty amazing process to witness. Does this album work better as the double album Tom envisioned? I'm not sure it's, it's necessarily better than the original Wildflowers, but it is fascinating to hear it all together now. And, and actually, he ended up, Tom also uh, replaced some of the, the second disc versions with other renditions 
that they cut as well. So you're, you're hearing even a different variation on it. Also, it should be noted, he had a very different track sequence for this whole double record that we're not getting because, as the family admits, they can't find it, which is kind of mind-boggling in a way. You'd think that would be somewhere. But I guess, you know, after 25 years, people putting things on paper or whatever, it's just not around. I really was hoping to hear the double record sequence the way he wanted it and how a different kind of flow it would have. So what you're getting is basically the record we all know and then an extra disc of, of other things that not in the order that he intended for the whole project. So it's kind of in a way hard to grapple with that kind of question as to whether it's improved or not. But it's rare, I think, that we hear a complete version of a record that someone pruned down. So that in itself is really worth hearing. You get the sense of all the stuff that he did want to include. And it doesn't happen that often in music that you hear the, not just studio outtakes, but things that actually the artist wanted to put out as a complete collection and had to cut in half. So, you know, it's kind of an insightful educational thing in that way. Can you guys talk about the irony of this being released after he passed? I mean, there are so many tragedies that are connected to Tom's death. The fact he just finished a huge tour that was so triumphant, and he's dead seven days later. The fact that it was an overdose, and it, it, it seemed to be something that was avoidable. And the fact that at the end of it, his family, who he loved and was always close to, that they were feuding. And as Ben Montench said, that he would have been horrified if he saw all of his private stuff just play out in the press and the court system. So it was really sad to think about that he visualized this moment for so long of these songs coming out and he didn't live to see it. It sort of puts a sort of sad shadow on the whole thing. It's his vision, but he didn't quite get there to see it happen. It's a very poignant project in that way, because his wife Dana was telling me that, as Andy said, he finished that tour. He felt that that was under his belt. He wanted to move into a different kind of phase of his life at that point. He wanted to produce other artists. He wanted to still do shows, but maybe on a smaller scale, maybe in more intimate venues. Uh, He felt like he'd reached a point in his life where he worked really hard and earned a certain stature level and he called the shots and he was looking forward to all these things that were awaiting him, including completing Wildflowers, but also things he hadn't done much before. Yeah, like producing other acts. He had just finished a record with Chris Hillman of The Birds. So he'd been a longtime fan of The Birds and he got to produce Hillman's first album in many years. So he kind of reached a good place, it seemed like, in his life in his personal life, in his professional life, and to have that all just taken away from him so quickly, kind of a tragic thing, for sure. What do you think Tom would think of the release of this box set? I think Tom would be thrilled. I think that this was Tom's dream. This was his last wish to put this out. And I think everybody who worked on it, they told me they always asked themselves, what would Tom want? He was their guiding light. They could almost see him in the studio as they worked on this. So I think Tom would be thrilled. This was his last wish, and his family came together after much strife, and they pulled it off. So I think he would be very, very happy. What would he think about his greatest albums ranking this time around? I think he would agree that that Wildflowers is his best record. He may want to see it a bit higher on the list, mm-hmm. but I think he'd be happy to be in the top 500. I, I think Tom was pretty modest, so he wouldn't want it in the top like 50 or anything. So I think he'd be cool with it. Thank you all for joining me to talk about Tom Petty's Wildflowers, which ranks 214th on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. The complete list can be found on our website, rollingstone.com, and in the magazine's October issue. 
I'm Brittany Spanos. This is Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums. Executive producers are Christian Horde, Nathan Brackett, and Gus Winner. It's produced by Emrys Eller and me, mixed by Michelle Lands. Our senior producer is Jasmine Morris. Megan McBride is our production manager. Bridget Shelsey is our production assistant. Fact-checking by Jonathan Bernstein. Supervising executives for Amazon Music are Raymond Roker, Kenton Brombot, and Ryan Reddington. And for Rolling Stone, Jason Fine. You can find this podcast exclusively on Amazon Music, on the web, the mobile app, or on any Echo device. And special thanks to The Petty Family, Carla Sachs, and Adam Holt. Murder on My Mind, a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus, explores the circumstances leading up to the murder of two young men and the mistrials of the man accused of killing them. Up-and-coming rapper YNW Melly gained notoriety in the hip-hop world for his shocking lyrics and criminal exploits. When two of his best friends were gunned down in a drive-by shooting, investigators suspected the young rapper staged the scene. But after not one, but two trials that ended in hung juries and new evidence that may place YNW Melly at the scene of the crime, his trial has been paused indefinitely. With countless twists and turns, Law & Crime covers all angles of the case and begs the question, is this young artist the victim of a witch hunt or a silver-tongued devil who's evil to the core? Listen to Murder on My Mind exclusively and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.